I'm in Luke chapter 6. We're talking about the love of God. And Jesus tells us here, I say to you, love your enemies and do good to those that hate you. Now, when I think about the words of Jesus on love, what comes to mind for me is one of the silent heroes of our faith, Corey Ten Boom. And I don't know if you're familiar with Corey Ten Boom, but she and her family were Dutch Christians and they hid Jewish refugees from Nazi oppression just prior to World War II and then into World War II. In February of 1944, she and her family were arrested and they were brought to Ravensbrück, one of the camps where her father would die 10 days later and then the Nazis would also take the life of her sister Betsy, someone she was dearly close to. Corrie ten Boom would survive the war merely by the grace of God and go on to write a number of books and pamphlets, all of which would remind people not just of the faith that worked in her life, but many Christians like her that labored for the love of God in the world of hostility. I think her most famous work is called The Hiding Place. and She recounts one of the most difficult moments of her life. It's a little bit lengthy. I'm going to read some of it. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's rewarding, so stick with me. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room, the door in the processing center in Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room of mocking men, the heaps of clothes, Betsy's plain blanched face. He came to me as the church was emptying and beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people the need to forgive, kept my hand by my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth, not the slightest spark of charity. And so also I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And I took his hand, and the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges on, but his. And when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with that command the love itself. Powerful words from a powerful moving of the Spirit. When I read that story and I think about Jesus' passage, it reminds me of the redemptive love that God gives us and calls us to display in a world of hostility. And I want to remind us of the context of Jesus' words here and also the context of what Corey ten Boom endured. It's the context of um, opposition. It's the context of hostility. Back in verse 11, we see that the Pharisees are filled with fury and they discuss what they might do with Jesus. A lot of people are pressuring Jesus here. Again, verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and spurn your name, evil on account of the Son of Man. Again, it's opposition, it's hostility. 
Verse 26, woe unto you when old people speak well of you. They're speaking well of you here in order to do evil to you in the long run. So the whole context here is God's redemptive love, the way that God's love can change us and can change the world, even a world of hostility, even a world that tries to oppress God's people, responding with love to hostility. And I want to talk about that this morning. I have six thoughts for you. We're going to move quickly through them, I promise, but... Six thoughts on love, and here they are in, from the passage. The first one is this. It's the importance of love. And I think we have to start here. Followers of Jesus, love should be the default response to hostility. That's the very first thing we learn here. And it's a simple lesson, but it's profoundly important. Love is the default response to hostility. There are three things that are kind of, they're not hidden in this passage, but once you see them, you, you, you can't get them out of your mind. I just want to bring these out. The first one is in the original language. And this, we don't see this in English, but you read, if you read a commentary, you get this. You have to notice that the you here is emphatic. And so Jesus here has been kind of addressing the crowds. He's even been addressing those that openly oppose him. When he says, you know, woe unto you, woe unto you. And then he looks at his disciples and he uses what's called an emphatic you. You, you love those who hurt you and do good to those that hate you. The you is emphatic here. If we were translating this, we would underline it or put it in bold. So Jesus here is highlighting. It's almost like he's looking at his disciples going, look at me for a minute. No, no, look right here. You, don't worry about them. You love those that hurt you. The second thing we see here, and this one I wouldn't know if somebody didn't point it out, this is the very first command Jesus gives in the Gospel of Luke. And I find that interesting, that we are all the way in chapter 6, and Jesus has not commanded us to do anything yet. But here he makes the first command, and he says, love your enemies and do good to those that hate you. And finally, I think the most important thing is this. And I want you to, when you read Luke, I want you to see this, because it's kind of interesting. Luke repeats the command four different ways. Lock that in, by the way, four different ways. He says, love, do good to those that hate you, bless those that curse you, and pray for those that abuse you. Four commands to say the exact same thing. Now, why is this important? Would you believe it if I told you that Luke does this 16 times in his gospel? 16 times. He will use four different things. These are 16 different passages to make one point. That's how Luke emphasizes something. Uh, I won't take the time to walk through all 16, but if you want to look at him, um, just last week you heard one. Look at verse 20. Uh, we, uh, rather, uh, 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 verse 24 Woe unto you that are rich, woe unto you that are full, woe unto you that laugh, woe unto you when all people speak well of you. That's four woes. Did you pick that up? The blessings. There are four blessings. If you were to read Luke 10, 27, what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. I could give you about 12 more of these in Luke's gospel. Luke, what he does is a literary device he uses. He will repeat things four times, four different ways, just to make one main point. And that's what he's doing here. This is such an extremely important thing that Luke is falling all over himself to make this point. Love, do good, bless, pray. We have to be different than those that oppose us. He's talking about the importance of love. Love needs to be the default response of God's people. 
You know how you have a screensaver? Maybe you have a screensaver. I hope you have a screensaver. And you leave your, your computer on for a while, and you come back, and there's that little geometric shape kind of bounce. That's a default response of your computer. Once 10 or 20 minutes you've gone, it just, the screensaver comes up. Uh, that's what God's people are called to have. Our default response, that which we default to, is love. That's our guiding principle. If I took a hymnal right now and I just kind of shot it out at you like that, right? not only would that not be very COVID-friendly, would it? And it would also be unpastorly. But the first thing you would do is you kind of flinch and you put your hand up like that. That's a reflex that you have. Jesus is saying here, and Luke is emphasizing, the reflex of the church is love. When hostility comes our way, you're going to feel like being afraid or you're going to get angry to the point of wanting revenge. Let love be your reflex. Let love be your response. Discipline your heart to love. And that needs to be the reflex of the church. All right, number two, let's talk about the nature of love. More than an emotion, love here is an action. And I'll I'll take a little bit of a ramp to get there, but Let me just make the point, two points real quick, just something to think about. First of all, there is no question Jesus is using some degree of hyperbole here. He's he's exaggerating some things to make an effect, right? I mean, when Jesus says, anybody that asks anything of you, just give it to them. I don't know any Christian that takes that literally. I mean, a single sociopath could take over the world, right? There's an exaggeration there to make a really important point. Don't make your life all about you. Make it about Christ and make it about other people, right? Let love be your guide. Also, passages like this are not telling us that you can never defend yourself. They're not telling you to never take a legal defense. I mean, the Apostle Paul defended himself throughout the book of Acts. There are times when Paul was being persecuted and he said absolutely nothing. There are other times when Paul was being persecuted and what did he do? He hired a lawyer and said, I'm a Roman citizen. And he took a legal defense. In each of those situations, it's not, is it right or wrong to mount a legal defense? Which of these guides, which of these promotes love? Which of these is the best way to love your neighbor as yourself? And sometimes it's not exercising those rights, and other times it is exercising those rights. Uh, I learned this one from Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. would tell us that Uh, of course, with the civil rights movement, defending yourself was the best way to love other people. I mean, when when people are oppressing someone, they are sinning against that person. They need to stop sinning against that person. And a legal defense and, um, and, and, and protest is how you help people stop sinning against people. It's one of the ministries that Martin Luther King Jr. came out. Also, he wanted to fix, and also we want to fix, broken systems so people better love their neighbors. So it's not telling us categorically you don't mount legal defenses, you don't do self-defense, but it should be always guided by love. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. All right, now to our main point. Jesus is not telling us to necessarily feel a certain way. He's telling us you need to act a certain way. Why do I say that? Because remember the fours that we just talked about? Did you notice three of them are actions, things that you actually do? Listen to what he says. Love, do good, bless, and pray. There's parallelism there. All four of these make the same point. Those are not just emotions. Those are actions. And what Jesus is saying here is sometimes you don't feel like praying for people, but what? Pray for them. (laughs) 
Sometimes you don't feel like doing good or blessing people, but bless them and do good to them. See, what happens sometimes is we, we feel like, you know, I, I can't get my heart in it, so it must not be God-honoring. This is what I hear people say. Let me put it this way. I hear a lot of people say things like, I don't want to be a hypocrite. Therefore, I'm not going to do the right thing to someone. I hate my boss. Why would I pray for my boss? If I pray for my boss, that would be hypocrisy. I'm really upset with my spouse. Why would I do something good for my spouse? My heart's not in it. That would be hypocrisy. I'm really upset with Christian people. Why would I fellowship with Christian people? That would be hypocrisy. My heart's not in it. What we tend to do when there's a disparity between our heart and what we feel like doing, we bring our heart in line with the wrong actions, right? In reality, the call in Scripture is do the right thing and then rebuke your heart so your heart gets behind the right thing, right? That's what the Pharisees were guilty of. The Pharisees, what did they do? They honored God with their lips, but the heart was far from them. You know, Jesus never said, stop praising God. You keep praising God, get your heart in line with praising God. If you read the minor prophets, what the minor prophets, one of the things they rebuked the people for is the sacrifices, They would bring these sacrifices to the temple, uh, but their hearts were nowhere near it. But nowhere in the Minor Prophets does it say, stop bringing sacrifices. Don't sacrifice. No, that's the right thing to do. The Minor Prophets rebuke the heart. When we find there's a disparity between the heart and the right, we, we, we do the right thing and we rebuke our heart. Let your heart come and get behind that. One of the best ways, by the way, to get your heart in line with the gospel is by doing the right thing. And I think that's what the passage is teaching here. Verse 35 says, Do these things, and you will be sons of the Most High. We're already sons of the Most High, but in a way, we kind of grow into things. Right? This is all over the Psalms. If you read the Psalms, sometimes David doesn't feel like praising God. But he starts off in verse 1, and by the time you get to the end of the psalm, his heart is in it. Sometimes we don't feel like loving people, but as we continue to do good and bless and pray for people, God has a way of bringing our heart in line with that. That's what Corey Ten Boom was teaching us. All right, number three is this. Let's talk about the preparation of love. Christians are called to prepare their hearts for love. I've been thinking about these hypotheticals all week. Verse 29, look at this. Uh, Verse 29 says, uh, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer him the other one also. And to the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Again, this is is a little bit of exaggeration here. Somebody steals something from you. You don't open your front door and say, go ahead and take the rest. (laughs) He's making a point, though, about love. To everyone who begs from you and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish others to do, do also to them. So we have some hypotheticals here. First of all, this is a popular one. What does it mean, turn the other cheek? This is talking about insult here. In the New Testament and Old Testament times, a smite on the cheek, it's not a crowbar on the cheek, it's a smite on the cheek. It's a public insult. You find this all over the Old Testament. For example, in the book of Job, it talks about someone striking the cheek in scorn. And in Matthew's gospel, get this, it says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek... What does that mean? Why would Matthew say right cheek? Because what Matthew's envisioning there is a backhand that goes like this. It's a right-handed person, and when they backhand someone, they're hitting them on what side? The right cheek. 
We're not talking about assault here. It doesn't say if you're assaulted by someone, let them assault you again. That's the wrong response. There you would take a legal defense, I trust. It's talking about public insult, a smite on the cheek. And so the public insult here is in view. In the Old Testament and New Testament times, everything was dominated by shame and honor. You never did anything to lose your honor, and you never wanted yourself to be shamed. And you would do anything at all costs to maintain your honor. This is a theme that is almost hard for Westerners to understand. Do you remember that passage with Elijah in the Old Testament in Kings, where there are, there are 42 boys, at least 42, and they go up to Elisha and they start mocking him, one of the prophets. They say, you have a bald head. You must have been a handsome fellow, huh? <laughs> you, have a, you have a bald head. And, and Elisha, what does he do? He rebukes them, and two bears come out of the woods and maul 42 people. And I'm reading that going, isn't that kind of like overkill? <laughs> you know? How about a timeout? Or, I don't know, talk to their parents or something like that. But a story like that makes complete sense in the ancient world. Because you've publicly insulted somebody, he's going to do everything to uphold his honor. Shame and honor just dominated the social landscape. Jesus here takes the opposite approach. He says, if somebody publicly insults you for the sake of the gospel, do not be afraid to be insulted again. Don't respond evil for evil. Don't respond insult for insult. That doesn't mean, by the way, you put your face back up there to take another smite. What that means is don't respond in kind. Don't feel like you have to lash back out. He also talks about charity here. If anyone asks, again, Luke includes the word anyone, anyone. Now, Matthew doesn't have that. If anyone asks, let him have your stuff. What do these four hypotheticals mean? Here's what I want us to see. Jesus gives four hypotheticals that have not yet happened to the disciples, and he's preparing them for when it does. And I think that's the lesson for us. We are called to prepare our hearts for love. And what I mean by this is you have to think through this stuff before it happens. That's what Christ is telling. Disciples, you're going to go out into the world. You're going to get a smite on the cheek. When that happens, here's what you do. Disciples, when you go out, someone's going to try to steal your cloak, which, by the way, they weren't. you couldn't even take the cloak in a lawsuit. This is a big deal. When it happens, give them the tunic. You have to prepare your heart for things that you think might happen throughout your day and throughout your life. You have to say things like this. You have to create your own hypotheticals. I'm going to go into work, and George is going to make the stupid comment he always makes every time I walk through the door, and it's going to terribly annoy me. Here's how I'm going to respond. When Thanksgiving happens, my uncle is going to go on a political tirade, and I'm going to want to throw him out the front door. (laughs) But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try to handle this with love. Here's how I'm going to handle it. When bedtime comes, everybody's tired, and I feel like I'm hurting cats with some of my little kids or my grandkids. Here's how I'm going to respond with love. I love the stories that we heard about Hopeline from Alto, and um, this idea, I'm thinking about people walking in, you know, with all these different stories, and you have to think that through. How am I going to respond to something like this? How am I going to love somebody in that situation? We should create our own hypotheticals. What goes on in your day? Where are the trouble points with you and your spouse what are the things that come up and every time they come up it just escalates into a fight 
How do we figure out in advance? How do you think through, that's a trouble point. When that comes up again, here's how I'm going to respond. You have to prepare your heart for love. In driving school, one of the things that every teenage, every adult driver is taught, you know this, when the ball rolls out in front of the car, what do you do? Hit your brakes because there's a kid running after it. That is preparing yourself for a crisis situation. If you have not prepared for that moment in driving school and in your mind, hypothetically, there could be a terrible accident that's going to take place. Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to give you four hypotheticals. You have to think these through in advance. And the same is for you and I. Let's think about, and everybody's different, think about the hypotheticals you need to work through and I need to think about the ones I need to work through. Let's talk about the depth of love for a minute. Christian love goes beyond reciprocity. Beyond reciprocity. Verse 32. If you love those that love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners. Go back to the same account. Love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. Behind most acts of love is a lot of selfishness. This is something people don't want to admit. It's something terribly hard for us to admit. But a lot of times on the surface, what looks like love very well could be a move of selfishness. I think I told you years ago, I remember reading Freakonomics, the book written by, uh, it was a Levitt and De Bruyner. Uh, one of them's an economist. And did I mention this? He, he mentions in his book that one of the, uh, that, that uh, elderly people in a nursing home are more likely to get visits if you have more than one child. And he says the obvious answer is they're competing for the inheritance. <laughs> and on the surface, you have two brothers or three brothers or sisters, and they're constantly visiting mom and dad. He says, but in reality, if you, if you just let it bear itself out, they're more likely competing for the inheritance. Behind acts of love, oftentimes we are moved with selfishness. I recently rewatched a 1980s movie. Do you remember The Elephant Man? Uh, the Elephant Man from 1980, it's about John Merrick. Uh, John Merrick is a severely deformed man. He's in 19th century London, and he's kind of held captive in a freak show. And John Merrick's life, it comes from apparently a true story, or based on a true story. John, John Merrick's life was so devastating, and his deformity was so severe, his head was three, had a three-foot circumference on his head. That's how deformed he was. He would have to sleep in a certain position or he'd asphyxiate. It's a terrible story of someone in so much pain every day. He could barely utter a word just because he couldn't form the words the right way. And there he is in a freak show and Mr. Bites there is taking advantage of him, making money off him and exploiting him. And along comes a very good loving doctor, Mr. Trevis. Trevis takes Merrick into the hospital and he takes care of him and gives him a beautiful room and surrounds him with wonderful nurses to take care of him. He wants to study Merrick. He wants to come up with some procedures that can help this kind of condition. And what Trevis does there in The Elephant Man, the story, is he starts introducing Merrick, the deformed man, to some people in high society. And so now he's meeting people with a lot of money, and movie stars, and things like that, and are actually scheduling time to go in and meet Merrick. And what happens in the story is something unusual. What Trevis has done is he's rescued Merrick from, quote-unquote, the old freak show, only to make him a freak show now in the hospital. 
where people parade by, only now they're people that are a little more sophisticated with more money. Now, the good doctor understands what's taking place. And about halfway through the film, he says to his wife, he pauses and he says, am I a good man or am I a bad man? And what Travis means is this. Did I rescue Merrick for his sake or did I rescue him for my sake? And I think sometimes behind these great acts of love, our hearts are not always in it. We love that person and we're good to them because they can get us a job. We love that person and we're good to them because they're just very attractive. Or maybe they can get our child a certain spot on a team. Or maybe they can affect the grade or where the child goes to school. We often love people, but behind that, it's not always. Sometimes there's a lot of darkness in our motives. And behind the acts of love, oftentimes is selfish interest. Notice what Jesus says here. Verse 34. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is it? Even sinners do that. This is called a safe loan. In other words, what people would do is this. They would lend money, but they'd only lend money to people they think down the road they might want to get a loan from. This is called the principle of reciprocity. You do for me, I do for you. And even though we may not put this down on paper, there's kind of a wink-wink going on. You would never lend money to somebody that couldn't help you down the road. Jesus says, even sinners lend money that way. We want to have the kind of radical love that goes beyond reciprocity, where we love people for the sake of love and for the sake of God. Love beyond reciprocity. Number five, two more thoughts. I'm going to move quick. Rewards of love. God promises to bless our spirit-led efforts to love. Now look at verse 35. I'm going to warn you, this may cut a little against your theology, but we're going with the text. (laughs) But love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Now let me ask you a question. When I ask you the question, should you love people so your reward will be great? My gut tells me I'm supposed to answer that no. But Jesus here is telling me to answer that yes. (laughs) That's why I say it cuts against our theology. I don't believe there's anything wrong with saying that God will bless our spirit-led efforts. And it's okay for us to let that be one of the motivations that we love people. Jesus tells us that here. It is God working through us, though, that makes that love possible, right? So God here is blessing the spirit-led efforts. Notice also another reason that we love. Um, I'm going to keep reading the passage, verse 35. He says, your, your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. In other words, we should be kind to the ungrateful and evil. Why? Because God is, unkind. Uh, God is kind to the grateful and evil. Right? The Lord is kind, and therefore, we want to be kind. I had that backwards, forgive me. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. So this gets into a very important Christian idea. Let me just float it out, and it's called the image of God. God is kind to people because they are created in His image. That's what's being programmed here into the text. We are kind to people because they're in God's image. This is the why behind the what. You know, back in the 60s, Bob Dylan wrote a great song, Blowing in the Wind. I love that song. I play it often. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? How many seas must a white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? How many times can a cannonball fly before they're forever banned? 
The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. What Dylan is saying is we should be kind to people. We should be gracious. You don't just bomb people because they're on the other side of the world. You don't marginalize someone because they look different than you, whether racially or culturally or a different language or different socioeconomic class. When I read Bob Dylan's song, I want to give it a hearty amen. Then I want to say, you have the right what, but you don't have the why. He's right. You don't just blow someone up on the other side of the world because they're on the other side of the world. You don't marginalize someone because they look different than you. But I want to look in at here and say, but why, Bob, why? I can tell you the answer is not blowing in the wind. It's because people are created in God's image. This is a theme that the church needs to recover in a hurry and in a big way. That we value people because God values people. We don't just value people because it's good for us. We don't value people because that seems to be the best. We don't value people because the state of Connecticut tells us to value people. We don't value people because of what our Constitution says. We value people because He is kind to the ungrateful and the ungodly. And therefore, so should we be. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. People are significant because they're created in God's image. Last thought is this. Here's the power to love. It says right at the end of the passage, verse 36, Be merciful even as your Father in heaven is merciful. We can be merciful even as God is merciful. I want to give you two thoughts here. I hope they're encouraging. The first one is this. Even if your love is imperfect, it's still real love. Don't lose this. If you're like me, one of the things that bothers you is you know how flawed your love is, and therefore you feel like quitting. You're like, well, if I can't love my spouse or my coworker or my church perfectly, why would I even try? Don't I have to be perfect? What happens is when we realize that we can't love people perfectly, we want to quit. That's a huge mistake. Because even imperfect love is nevertheless love. Let me illustrate this for you. I want you to picture with me, oh, I don't know, let's use the closest school I know, Farmingville Elementary School. And the second grade class just got recorders. Remember recorders? They're going to make a lot of chaos in that music room. And the teacher is going to teach them to play Beat It by Michael Jackson. There they are on their recorders, you know, you know, playing Beat It. And the principal walks by the classroom, and the principal smiles. Why does the principal smile? Because they're getting beat it from the recorder. She understands the song that's being played. I can guarantee you they are playing beat it imperfectly. It is nevertheless really beat it. (laughs) Our love is not perfect. You're not going to love your spouse perfectly. You're not going to love your kids perfectly. Your motives are constantly going to be mixed. But as Christians, nevertheless, our love is very real. When you play a song, you may not play it perfectly, but man, it's a real song. And when you play basketball, you don't play it like you're in the NBA, but we can all say, look, they're playing basketball. Don't let imperfect love keep you from loving people. Don't think in those crazy binary categories. Now, here's the point to appreciate. Love for others is grounded in God's love for us. Be merciful even as your heavenly Father is merciful. In other words, we see and experience God's mercy. We embrace it. And we're like the house of mirrors, right? We shed it abroad from our hearts. I'm not an expert on astronomy, 
But Julie Maynard from Washington State University is. And she answers the question, how does the moon shine? Here's how Julie answers this question. Unlike a lamp or our sun, the moon does not produce its own light. Did you know that? Moonlight is actually sunlight that shines on the moon and bounces off. The light reflects the off old volcanoes, craters, and lava that flows on the moon's surface. When you look up into the sky and you see that moon, that is not because the moon has a native light to itself. It's because it has absorbed and then reflected the light that comes from the sun. In my prayer for us at Ridgefield Baptist and all the Christians here in our area, we do not have that native light. We do not have in and of ourselves this profound love. It is God's love that is given to us, and then we embrace it, we reflect it out into all of our relationships. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts. Our power comes, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you for all under the sound of my voice here. Thank you that each one is thinking through how to love neighbor, how not just to lend to those that will be able to help them down the road, not just shaking hands or doing things with people that they think they can advantage from, but recognizing each individual made in the image of God. People are special to us because they're special to you. And Lord, I pray that our ethic, our response to hostility would indeed be love. Grant us your grace and your strength to be the people you've redeemed us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.